Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I don't know about you guys, but I owe my interest in history to my father. I have wonderful memories of sitting with him in his den as he smoked his favorite Cavendish, recounting geopolitics of the Cold War era. I was, apparently, a very strange five-year-old who loved this era of history. But something I had totally forgotten about until I told my dad that I was working on this episode was that he had a personal connection to these events. His friend from high school worked at the U.S. Embassy in Iran when it was overrun in 1979, and those who worked there were taken hostage for 444 days. I don't know if that story subconsciously affected my decision to do an episode on the last Shah of Iran, but I can say, with certainty, that I have long been fascinated with the downfall of regimes. It's some sort of morbid, macabre curiosity, I suppose. I tend to enjoy finding the human element behind the myth and all the headlines. And so now, let us find the human behind today's subject. The Shaw, the last king of kings. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. Driving through the streets where there are no traffic jams, waving pistols, rifles, machine guns. The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took control of the palace of the Shah. The imperial guards there gave up without a struggle. Two of Iran's top generals, the commander of the ground forces and the head of the Shah's imperial guards have been killed, roaming the city of Tehran in search of officials, those loyal to the Shah. In the ravaged center of Tehran this week, journalist Raji Sangabadi visits a different kind of memorial to the Shah's 26 years in power. Sacked by demonstrators, this small house has become a bizarre horror museum. For hidden in the basement are some of the torture chambers of the Shah's secret police, Savak. Iranians continue to vote today on the new Islamic constitution, a document that legitimizes the power of the religious leaders and invests in one of them supreme powers. There's little question who that one supreme power will be, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Voting ends at 6 p.m. It will be several days before the actual votes are counted, but the results are hardly in doubt. At most polling places, 97% of the people are dropping green ballots into the box. Green means yes. The red ballots for disapproval are torn up. And do they all really believe this? They all want this state? And this week, the crowds have shown that they are ready to fight back, pelting the soldiers with rocks and homemade petrol bombs. Inevitably, the result is massacre. But now, as we've just heard, there are widespread reports of great killings. Our own reporters have been at the scene right down there in the uh, 
Shah Azar Avenue, where it is reputed more than 200 people have been shot. Uh, I fear that it is running out of control and it's, the, the process of radicalization is far beyond anybody's control to stop, even Khomeini's. Khomeini, almost unknown outside of Iran just a few months ago, returned a hero, the man who from long distance had led the revolution to topple the Shah. Inside the airport terminal, Khomeini was greeted by scores of Muslim religious leaders and political allies. He called on Iranian Prime Minister Bakhtiar to resign and said all foreigners should leave the country. In an obvious reference to the United States, he said foreign advisors have ruined our culture and have taken our oil, and have taken our oil, and have taken our oil. How does a king know when he's on borrowed time? Does it take a near-death experience, or two, or three? Or is it the revelation that his power rests only on outside forces, propping him up at their own interests? Or perhaps it's when a king looks around at the rest of the world and sees that nearly every monarchy has fallen. It just might be the case that all earthly monarchies are on borrowed time to a certain extent. That they are merely a phase in humanity's concepts of good governance. Perhaps every king was and is just part of a countdown clock that eventually runs out. The 20th century seemed to be the century that monarchies died. Portugal, China, Russia, Germany, Austria, Syria, the Ottoman Empire, Greece, Mongolia, Vietnam, Italy, Bulgaria, Romania, Egypt, Iraq. All of these, just to name a few, and there are many more, all of these fell in the 20th century, prior to 1979. And so, in the case of the king of Persia, the king of Iran, the great king, the king of countries, the king of provinces with many tongues, the king of this great earth far and near, the inheritor of Cyrus the Great and the Achaemenid Empire, the king of kings, a monarchy that was about to celebrate its 2500th year in existence, borrowed time is probably putting it lightly. Late in August of 1941, the crown prince of Iran, Mohammad Reza, was watching his father, the Shah, which is Persian for king, in a very tense meeting with his generals. They were explaining to the king why they could do nothing against the overwhelming military force that was invading the ancient land of Persia. In just 24 hours, the Iranian military had completely capitulated, and the king wanted to know why. When the lead general failed to deliver an adequate answer, the Shah ripped the general's stars from his uniform and began beating him with a stick. He then grabbed the man's own sidearm and proceeded to pistol whip him. Just as it seemed that the Shah was about to execute his top general on the spot, the crown prince, Mohammad Reza, stepped in and convinced his father to let the man be court-martialed instead. The prince knew that spilling Iranian blood would do nothing. The military leadership didn't have anything in their control anyway. Their forces had completely melted away into the populace. Soldiers and officers had gone home to burn their uniforms, fearing being picked out of a crowd by the invaders. Army trucks and military supplies were simply abandoned in the streets. Overhead, leaflets were falling from the sky, imploring the Iranian soldiers not to fight back. That this invading force was not a force of occupation, 
but one of liberation. Even so, the same planes that dropped leaflets on Iran's major cities were also dropping bombs. Iran, officially neutral in World War II, was ill-prepared to defend itself. Its tanks were woefully outdated, and it had no allies to call on for help. In the air, the enemy planes had a monopoly. The planes bearing the Red Star of the Soviet Union. By sea, in the Persian Gulf, the British Navy had captured Iran's ports. And soon, 200,000 British and Soviet troops with over 1,000 tanks were rolling into the heart of Iran with no resistance. The Shah sent an urgent telegram to the United States President Roosevelt for aid, but all Roosevelt could do was encourage the king to view the Allied invasion in the light of larger world events. Later, the prince found his father pacing the grounds of the abandoned royal palace. No guards, no court ministers, not even the royal families. They were all sent out of the city for protection. The father and son had decided to stay in Tehran and find some way to offer leadership to their country under siege. After four days, the Shah officially ordered his troops to stand down, and he refused to begin sabotaging the infrastructure of Iran. Blowing bridges and water plants at this point would do little for Iranian morale anyway. As the state of military occupation settled into Iran, a vicious tactic was employed against the king. Iranians were avid listeners of BBC programming, and now, every night, the BBC began airing scathing productions against their king. The British claimed to be uncovering vast webs of corruption. They said that the Shah had been stealing from the state treasury to enrich himself, that his family used their royal connections to curry favors and get rich at the expense of hardworking Iranians. The BBC called the Shah a despot, a cruel and inhumane ruler. The Iranians were glued to these programs every night. The Shah knew what was afoot, and so through the American ambassador, he passed a message along to the British, asking that if he cooperates fully with them and corrects his failings as a ruler, can he retain his throne? The British gave him a response that can effectively be summed up as when a parent tells a child, maybe. The Shah also sent his prime minister to speak with the British embassy in an attempt to get the damaging BBC broadcast to stop. But the prime minister turned his back on the Shah. He made it very clear to the British that if they forced an abdication, the people of Iran wouldn't be all that upset with such an event. For Iranian politicians, the crown prince was the obvious choice to replace his father as the Shah. But Britain was not so convinced. They were leaning towards ending the current dynasty altogether. The Pahlavi dynasty was started by the current Shah. And if the Anglos had their way, it wouldn't survive into a second generation. The current Shah, whose name was Reza Khan Pahlavi, was a usurper of the throne. He rose the military ranks, eventually becoming the sole competent military leader of the country that had a very incompetent Shah. Iran at the time was deteriorating into chaos from lack of leadership. And so, the British government, preferring a strong central government to, to pull things together, helped Reza Khan organize a coup to become the new Shah. And overnight, his son, Mohammad Reza, became the crown prince of Iran. But now, the British had determined that Reza's strong central government had outlived its usefulness. The reason behind Britain's motives to remove Reza Shah are extremely complex. But the gist is that Britain had significant geopolitical interests in Iran. The Anglo-Persian oil company, which we know today as BP, had leased land and built a refinery in Iran that, shortly after the turn of the century, became a massive source of the empire's fuel. Millions of tons of oil were exported every year. Further, it was a strategic launchpad against any potential threats in not only Europe, but Asia as well. 
I ran, was the only thing between the British fleet and Russia. Reza Khan's son would only be a suitable successor if the British felt he could be a trusted puppet. But also, despite what they wanted, in the end, there was really no one else to take the throne. And so on September 17, 1941, at 4.30 in the afternoon, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi took the oath of office and became the new Shahan Shah, the king of kings. The willingness by Reza Khan to abdicate the throne surprised both his son and the British. But Mohammad Reza was given a glimpse into his father's psyche at the time when he was ordered to replace him. Quote, he could not stand the infamy of remaining in his capital city when it was occupied by foreign troops. I had, of course, to obey my father, who commanded me to take over the job. End quote. This new Shah, although raised by his father and accompanied him in all affairs of state towards the end of his reign, was not like his father. Reza Khan was a strong, resolute man, a pragmatic, contemporary ruler, and, by all accounts, not a spiritual man. Author Abbas Milani, whose bio on the Shah I'm referencing, notes the stark contrast in their oath of office. Quote, While Reza Shah's oath was that of the modern monarch, his sons trafficked in medieval ideas about the divine rights of kings. End quote. This young Shah was born on October 26, 1919, in a small house in Tehran. His father, Reza Khan, was an officer in the Cossack Brigade of Persia, a Russian-style infantry unit. As Reza Khan moved up in rank, his family's living conditions also improved. Tehran is an ancient city full of history and mythical Persian romance, but around the time of the birth of the future Shah, it was a broken city. Spanish flu hit the city harder than many other places in the world. 10% of the population was addicted to opium. And World War I had degraded many of the provinces into tribalistic gang territories. Traveling from one city to the next was a true peril to your life. Russia, because of its size and proximity, was historically the chief external force upon Iran. But with the fall of the Tsar and the rise of the Bolsheviks, the British Empire sought to increase its influence, with bribes of course, to secure its position as the big brother of the oil-rich yet destitute fabled kingdom. Soon, every minister of the Iranian government had a British advisor. Fearing the very real Bolshevik threat to Iran, the British government decided that the only way to prevent a revolution was to establish a strong man on the throne. And so, at the urging of his British friends, Reza Khan led the Cossack Brigade into Tehran with no resistance and took control of the capital. On December 12, 1925, a constitutional assembly voted Reza Khan the new King of Kings. The young Mohammad Reza was six years old. Up to this point, he had been raised by his devout Muslim mother, but now Reza took Muhammad under his wing to teach him how to be king. Everyone around Muhammad was now by law required to refer to him as your highness, even his own mother. When one of his boyhood friends came around, he was scolded by the adults for calling Muhammad by his first name. When his handlers left, Muhammad whispered to his friend, quote, When they're around, call me your highness, but when we are alone together, you can call me the same name you always used to, end quote. Muhammad's father was adamant that the future Shah be taught the ways of the West. His own thinking was that the Iran of the future would need enlightened rulers. Quote, we, the old and ignorant, must go. End quote. And so, by a Western tutor, the young man was taught English and French, and eventually sent off to a boarding school in Switzerland. Reza Khan had the air of a strong, brutish man who demanded absolute formalities, even from his own family. Yet in private, he adored his son. He loved to joke with his boy, and he always tried to make him laugh. 
At bedtime, Reza Khan would sing the boy lullabies to ease him to sleep. It broke his fatherly heart to see him off to Europe. The prince that left Iran was an ignorant, someone innocently arrogant rich boy, a son of a king, you might say. But after getting into schoolyard fights with the Western boys, playing Western sports, learning Western philosophy, the prince that returned was something of a cosmopolitan, almost too cosmopolitan for his father's taste. In tow from Europe, the prince brought a new best friend, a homosexual Catholic man more than 10 years a senior named Ernest Perron. And there's no evidence that the men were ever romantically involved, only that this man was something of a philosophical advisor to the prince. A British report of the prince during his coming of age read, quote, A most encouraging report. It may be that the crown prince, having been sent to Europe sufficiently young, may have really absorbed a European outlook. End quote. But Iran had changed too. No more was it the failed state he left behind. Now... It was in the firm grasp of a totalitarian Shah bent on modernizing. In a move that ticked off the Ayatollahs, who were the Shiite clergy of Iran, the Shah opened up its famous mosques and religious sites to Western scholars and anthropologists. But what really raised the ire of the Ayatollahs was the secularization of the judiciary branch and the educational sector of government. For years, the clergy were the judges and the teachers of the nation, and this move not only drastically reduced the Ayatollah's influence over the soul of the nation, but it also left them financially strapped. These overhauls were followed by bans on certain public forms of Muslim worship, such as self-flagellation, as well as public mourning of the martyrs of Shiism. He then banned the traditional headgear worn by Muslim women. When protesters turned out to defy the Shah, the army fired on them. The clergy never forgot these events. In a move indicative of the Shah's newfound power, he revoked an old custom of capitulatory rights, which was a holdover from colonialism that allowed citizens of the colonial country immunity from Iranian courts. He also revoked the rights of foreign government troops to carry arms inside Iran. The foreign troops were exclusively British and held certain positions as guards throughout the country. But now, only Iranian troops would be armed. And then, the Shah literally ripped up an agreement between the two nations one that gave Britain exclusive rights to Iranian oil. And the British, like the clergy, never forgot these events. But for the prince's father, his biggest mistake, at least in the immediate, was an amiable relationship with the rising Nazi power in Germany. Hitler's interest in Iran was veiled in a racial claim of brotherhood through Arianism, but in reality his interest was geopolitical. Put simply, Iran had oil and was a border nation to the Soviet Union thus making it a critical piece to Hitler's puzzle. Though the Shah remained neutral in the growing global conflict, Britain and the Soviet Union were convinced that the Nazis were establishing an underground core that would soon rise up and seize Iran. There is some evidence that such a plot was underway, though not in a significant enough scope to really be successful. Nevertheless, for the Allies, even the specter of this threat in Iran could not be ignored. It was soon determined that the invasion and occupation of Iran was necessary, and the Shah, who was by all appearances on friendly terms with Hitler, had to be removed. The Allies, however, failed to notice that, as the extermination of Jews began to precipitate across Germany, Reza Khan used his influence to issue Persian passports to thousands of European Jews, keeping them out of the Nazi death camps. Now, in the wake of this cataclysmic turn of events for Reza Khan, his son, Mohammad Reza, was now the new king of kings. The new Shah 
saw just how easily the colonial powers had not only helped his father usurp the throne, but also remove his father from it. And just in case the new Shaw had missed the memo, the British made things absolutely clear. They sent him a message through an Egyptian emissary to, quote, Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest what happened to your father. End quote. Aside from taking the throne in a state of occupation against the backdrop of world war, the Shah had imminent matters of state to resolve. His father had abdicated in the wake of a massive financial scandal that was rocking the country. The National Bank, created by his father, had a substantial sum of money missing, including the crown jewels of the royal family, which in part backed the value of the Iranian currency. Fortunately, a private investigation found that the jewels were still intact, but the issue of banking corruption by his father would continue to plague the new Shah for the rest of his life. It was claimed that the private cash hoard of the former Shah was about $4.25 million, almost half the liquidity of the entire Iranian government. Upon abdication, this fortune was transferred to the new Shah. There was also a new political problem to deal with. And it should be no surprise that, with an occupation by Soviet forces, an Iranian Communist Party suddenly springs to life under the guise of a spirit of nationalism. This new party became known as the Tuda Party, literally translating to the party of the masses. One of the first things the Shah did, wisely, I suppose, was begin depositing his fortune in banks all over the world. This was his insurance policy should he ever need to flee Iran like his father. The second thing he did was begin bribing journalists to counter the negative narrative against his family. Ironically, the British advised against this, but he ignored them. He even went so far as to create a state newspaper that would publish news and op-eds from the perspective of the monarchy. He used his own riches to personally invest in this newspaper's launch. But his final move to change the paradigm in Iran, and one that he would regret the most, was to improve relations with the clergy, the Ayatollahs. The Shah's immediate threat upon taking the throne was communism. It was quite literally on his borders, and for any 20th century monarch, communist revolutionaries were the boogeymen in the shadows. The Shiite clergy would be, he thought, a fierce weapon against these communists. And so he deviated from his father by publicly proclaiming that, quote, Islamic tenets are humanity's source of salvation. Following these rules in my time and in any other, will bring common welfare and comfort, end quote. And so new mosques were built and religious schools were reopened. In June of 1943, the Shah brought back a powerful exiled Ayatollah. The British, meanwhile, warned the Shah about the danger of playing with fire. Around this time of revival for traditional Shia Islam, a cleric named Nawab Savavi emerged as a radical voice of traditionalism. Most of the Ayatollahs ignored this firebrand, but one Ayatollah by the name of Rudallah Khomeini, allied himself closely with Savavi. Together they created the Fedayani Islam, the Martyrs of Islam. They would eventually be recognized as one of the most successful terrorist groups hatched out of modern-day Iran. With the Shah's military and police forces solely focused on the communist threat, they failed to see the rise of radical Islam on the horizon. With their renewed voice in Iran, the Ayatollahs began demanding a return of their positions and influence, particularly in education. The Shah granted them almost everything they wanted. He not only made overtures to the clergy, but he made the same to politicians. Over and over again, he committed himself to the rule of law, to democratic and constitutional monarchy. But there was still another power that the Shah knew he must make amends with, the British. 
In private, he sent a message to the British ambassador that he intended to maintain a close, personal, and private relationship with, quote, His Majesty's legation with greatest discretion, end quote. The British had already removed from power three shahs. Mohammed Reza did not want to be the fourth. But there was another rising power that the Shah thought he should begin to cozy up with. The Americans. Without the knowledge of the British, they received nearly the same message from the Shah. But the American ambassador, a man named Hurley, was troubled by the colonial relationship Iran had with Britain. He saw them as enriching themselves while keeping the Iranian populace in a state of perpetual poverty. Hurley's report on the subject became the virtual blueprint for the future U.S. policy of democratizing the Middle East. When President Roosevelt forwarded the report to Churchill, Churchill responded, quote, I make bold, however, to suggest that British imperialism has spread and is spreading democracy more widely than any other system of government since the beginning of time. End quote. On July 26, 1944, Reza Khan, former King of Kings, died wallowing in depression and despondency, and he left a few last words for his beloved son. Quote, Without a hope of seeing you, I would no longer have any attachment to life. Be firm and steadfast. Fear nothing, as a single mistake by you might well destroy our efforts of twenty years and sully our family name. Never succumb to anxiety. Remain so resolute that no force can change your determined will. End quote. Much like the condition of Iran, the Shah's personal life was in flux. His wife, the queen, was a princess from Egypt, and the marriage was arranged when his father was still king. And though they had a daughter, the marriage was all but forfeited. She had long been back home in Egypt under the guise of a vacation, and the cause of her unhappiness was the Shah's evening company for it was not uncommon in those days, before security became an issue, to see the Shah speeding through the streets of Tehran in one of his priceless automobiles with a beautiful young girl who was not the queen riding shotgun. As World War II came to an end, both Britain and the U.S. swiftly removed their forces out of Iran. But the Soviets took their time. Stalin knew Iran had an ocean of oil underneath its surface, and he wanted a piece of the pie that Britain had. The Soviet Union, in fact, began reinforcing their troops, preparing for what was looking to be an all-out overthrow of the Shah. But the U.S., as the new world power on the stage, applied pressure to Stalin, and he withdrew his troops without incident. The area of Soviet occupation north of Iran was the province of Azerbaijan, and the occupation was at first propped up as a democratic party of resistance against the Shah. But having lived a short time under the heavy foot of communism, the people offered the Shah's forces no resistance when they reclaimed the territory. In retrospect, this incident, in which America pressured the Soviet Union to give up territory, was noted by the Shah as the beginning of the Cold War. The next day in history, Winston Churchill gave his iconic speech about the rise of an iron curtain over parts of the world. But the Shah had more immediate issues to worry about. On February 4, 1949, the Shah stepped out of his black Rolls Royce, dressed in his military uniform under a long coat. He had just returned from a ski trip and was due to give a speech at Tehran University, a secular college, and bane to the clergy. Photographers swarmed the Shah and began snapping photographs. One man, named Nasser Fakare, had a revolver inside his camera case. As the Shah approached the building, Fakare fired his first shot at nearly point-blank range. It grazed the Shah's hat, 
and at the sound of the shot, the Shaw's security detail, instead of jumping to the King of Kings' protection, hit the deck, leaving him at the mercy of the gunmen. The next two shots were also near misses, but the fourth round penetrated the Shaw's cheek and exited through his upper lip. Quote, There we stood, facing each other, with no one between us. I knew there was no reason why the next bullet won't hit me. I fully remember my reaction in those split seconds. I thought maybe I should jump him, but then I realized that such a move will make me an easier target, and if I tried to escape, I figured he'll just shoot me in the back. End quote. The Shaw continues his retelling, saying he performed a, quote, series of acrobatic moves, employing a military tactic to confound the shooter. The next bullet wounded my shoulder. The last bullet jammed in the chamber. End quote. Finally, out of bullets, the assassin threw his gun at the Shaw and fled the scene, but was eventually shot to death by soldiers. Everyone suspected that the Communist Tuda Party, now declared illegal, was behind the attempted hit. By the time the 1950s had rolled around, the Shah was officially divorced from his first wife and increasingly at war with his own government. He was constantly forced to appoint prime ministers who despised him and wanted to limit his power for good. His retaliation was always some sort of attempt at a constitutional amendment to dissolve the parliament and appoint new ministers. He felt that Iran needed a strongman if it were to rid the nation of communists and usher in a modern economy. Politics were just too damn slow, and the world's rising glut for oil was every day making the Shah a more central figure in national discussions. The rise of communism around the world raised the Shah's stock in the eyes of the U.S. and Britain, too. They knew, with him in power, communism in the Middle East would be a tough road to hoe for the Soviets. But things were about to sour for the Shah's relationship with Britain. As more and more oil-producing nations nationalized their production, the Shah's land lease with Britain looked less and less attractive, and many prominent Iranian politicians began making this an issue of national debate. They began openly asking the Shah, Are you for Iran or for Britain? This is our oil, after all. The British proposed a new agreement, but it of course fell short of what the Iranian parliament wanted. And so at its rejection, the British were furious and demanded the Shah ram the agreement through his parliament. Publicly, the Shah supported his parliament, but privately, remembering his father's forced abdication, he assured the British that he supported their position. And so the British pressured the Shah to appoint a prime minister, a man named Rasmara, who they thought could deliver them their precious oil trade agreement. And just as Rasmara came close to finding a middle ground between Britain and the government, he was gunned down by Islamic terrorists on the steps of a mosque. The assassination of the chief proponent of the deal with the British led to a marked increase of support for nationalization. And once again, the Shah argued that he needed more power as king. If he had the power, he could disband and eliminate the nationalist-leaning parliament. The British, by this time, were all for it. They wanted him to just throw out the government and declare martial law. They also, on cue reminded him of what happened to the past Shahs who defied them. And as the months dragged on, the British grew more and more hawkish in their open threats towards the Shah. At one point, they even developed an operation called Buccaneer that called for a naval attack of Iranian ports to secure the oil that Britain so desperately needed. The Shah, upon learning of Operation Buccaneer, told the British ambassador, quote, I will personally lead my soldiers into battle against you if you attack Iran. End quote. Amidst all this geopoliticking, the queen mother of the Shah and his sisters were busy trying to find a new queen for Iran, and they settled on an Iranian-German actress named Soraya. She was beautiful, and she was young, and having been raised mostly in Europe, she knew nothing of Iran, 
But nonetheless, when shown a photo of Soraya, the Shah agreed to the marriage. Soraya gives us an unusual glimpse into the Shah as a human being and not the King of Kings. Quotes, In spite of countless mistresses he had before me, Mohammed Reza was extremely shy with women. He did not like to show his feelings, and his eyes were expressive. They were dark brown, almost black, shining, at times hard, and at times sad or gentle. They exuded charm and reflected his soul, and he could not bear the smallest rebuke. End quote. The tension of global affairs, of Britain, and their lust for Iranian oil, and their threats of pulling his throne out from under him were piling on top of the already evident issues of rising Islamic extremism, the assassination of government ministers, the nationalization movement, the Tuda party, all of this, as one British diplomat noted, was pushing the Shah towards a nervous breakdown. Soraya wrote that during this time, their nuptial bed, she viewed, as the sole place of consolation for the Shah. Parliament was now running the show, and they were firmly against any deal with Britain. And though the Shah still woke up every day and went to his office, he admitted it was simply a formality since no one asked for his advice anymore. Even now, despite his constitutional title as commander-in-chief of the military, the generals were answering to the new prime minister, a man named Mozadek. So depressed was he about his, his irrelevance that he didn't bother hiding it from the American ambassador. Quote, but what can I do? I am helpless. No matter how strong and resolute I may wish to be, I cannot take unconstitutional moves against strong current nationalist feelings. End quote. The Shah was unmistakably going the way of a figurehead king. Perhaps he should have been content to stay that way, but I suppose that's easier said than done. By outward appearances, the Shah was described as despondent, haunted, vacant, dejected, his regal palace had been stripped of much of its military detail by the nationalistic prime minister bent on reigning and spending. But few people knew that the Shah was sneaking CIA operatives in and out of his palace for midnight meetings. Together, they were hatching a plot to overthrow the nationalist government. For Britain and the U.S., the motives were simple. A nationalist government means nationalized oil. Nationalized oil means the West is at the mercy of Iranian price hikes. Even Churchill asked the CIA to pass along his support to the Shah. Soon, pro-Shah demonstrations began spontaneously appearing all over Tehran. At a lunch meeting with the Shah, a group of protesters appeared outside and began demanding the death of the Prime Minister Mozadek. He escaped with his life thanks to Soraya, the Shah's wife, sneaking him out of the palace. Mozadek, Prime Minister and leader of the nationalist movement, had lost the political initiative. Back in the USA on June 23, 1953, a meeting took place in what I like to think was a dark, smoky room with awkward lighting. At this meeting were Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, his brother and Deputy CIA Director Alan Dulles, and Kermit Roosevelt, one of those CIA guys who had been snuck into the palace to coordinate with the Shah. The meeting was to discuss a plan proposed by the British to get rid of the Iranian Nationalist Prime Minister Mozadek. They feared that Mozadek, who was now vulnerable, was beginning to turn to the communist Tuda party, or even petition the Soviets directly for support. This, by virtue of American foreign policy for the period, was not to be tolerated. And so Operation Ajax was hatched. Roosevelt was given the codename Rainmaker, and the Shah was given the name Boy Scout. 
Mosaddegh knew foreign machinations were afoot, and so he closed the British embassy in Iran and he forced the retirement of a swath of Iranian generals. But he failed to understand the increasing role the United States had been taking in the post-World War era. He had no idea that the American embassy shared damn near everything with the British. Now, in terms of what happens next, there's a lot of back-channel spycraft that went on. Some of it we know about. Much, though, is still sealed away in U.S., Iranian, and British government documents. What we know is that the Shah finally issued a letter to dismiss Mosaddegh as prime minister, and then he left for a vacation at a summer resort with the Queen, where they would be a safe distance from whatever Operation Ajax entailed. But for reasons unknown, the letter was never delivered. At the resort, the Shah was a nervous wreck. He had almost no context to update him on events that may or may not be going on in the capital. He finally got word that one contact he did have had been arrested by Mosaddegh. And that was the end, he thought. The CIA plot had surely failed, and soon the pro-nationalist revolutionaries would be coming for his head on a silver plate. In a panic, the Shah and the Queen boarded their personal jet, and he would take no chances on any pilot with dubious loyalty. Being an experienced pilot, he flew himself and the Queen to Baghdad, Iraq. He told the Baghdad airport that he was a tourist plane having engine trouble. And amazingly, King Faisal of Iraq happened to be landing at the same airport at nearly the same time. Once the Shah's situation was made known, the King of Iraq granted the Shah asylum. The Tuda party and nationalist journalists sought to capitalize on the fleeing Shah. Quote, Go, you traitor, because even the foreigners now find you so worthless and useless that they will not pay you any wages for your most recent criminal act. You must now pay your bills in European cabarets from the dollars and pounds you and your father have plundered. Go, you traitor, who completed the 30-year history of the Pahlavi dynasty's criminal record. End quote. What's odd is, and I think this shows that the people of Iran hadn't yet realized the rising hegemony of the United States, is that all the newspapers and politicians of the time in Iran were attributing the ongoing coup to Britain, not the United States. And yet today, as author Abbas Malani points out, history records this as an entirely CIA operation. Quote, It is a remarkable fact of historical transubstantiation that eventually the events of August became known as the CIA coup, with all but no mention of the British role in the affair. End quote. On August 18th, it appeared the CIA coup had failed. They began blaming it on the cowardice of the Iranian generals to deliver the Shah's letter to the prime minister and then arrest him. For around three days, there were street battles between the nationalists and the royalists. The Tuda party was openly hoping for a Bolshevik-style revolution. But this communist threat mobilized the citizenry to come out as a mob against the nationalists. And by the end of the day on the 18th, the Shah's fortunes were changing. Long live the Shah could now be heard ringing every corner of Tehran. When the prime minister's government sent the soldiers out to disperse the crowds, the military leadership responded that the soldiers would no longer be attacking the pro-Shah demonstrators. By the end of the 19th, General Zahadi, a pro-Shah military man, had taken control of the government. They had even rolled in with tanks to bombard the private residence of the prime minister, Mosaddegh, until he finally turned himself in. A journalist present for all these events noted that during these few days in Iran, there were so many American dollars flooding the Iranian economy that the value of American currency dropped in its exchange value. The Shah, by this time, had made his way to Rome, where he and his young queen were discussing their futures as exiled monarchs. But then, he received a telegram that turned his face pale and sent his hands into a shiver. The anti-Shah forces had been defeated. And then another telegram from General Zahadi 
asking the Shah to return to his throne as soon as possible. Before he returned, in anticipation of dealing with the nationalist mood of the country, the Shah sent a message to the British government that he was going to say some harsh words against them, but not to worry, because they didn't reflect his true feeling. The Shah, once again, seeing on grand display the immense power of the colonial governments, coerced his government to sign a deal with Britain's Anglo-Persian oil company that transferred control of the Iranian oil spigot and the pricing thereof out of Iranian hands. And though the Shah was rejuvenated by pulling victory from the jaws of defeat, there were problems both personally and geopolitically. His young queen, Soraya, as it turns out, was infertile. And in the wake of this realization, the royal couple grew far apart from each other, and it was only a matter of time before a divorce became official. And about the same time, like a sudden, unexpected thunderstorm, the Iraqi monarchy was violently overthrown by a populist revolution, right next door to Iran. There's no doubt it was troubling news. Radical Islam was gaining steam, too. In response to Islamic violence, the Shah pushed the limits of his police force. And further, with the backing of Britain once again, the Shah successfully wrangled power away from the new prime minister. By the late 50s, everyone reported directly to the Shah. This time, it was the prime minister who was the figurehead. And the Shah explicitly told his government that he, as Shah, was the fountainhead of all authority in Iran. With increasing centralized authority, political arrests began, namely against members of the Tuda party. In the wake of these arrests, rumors of torture began to spread. One rumor claimed a bear was brought in as part of enhanced interrogation. Iranian generals disregarded this as exaggerated. These arrests and covert operations were being carried out by a brand new secret police force that served the Shah directly, called SAVAK. The CIA put together a list of government decisions that belonged exclusively to the Shah, and it said that he is, quote, de facto prime minister and is in operational command of the armed forces. He determines or approves all important government actions. No appointment to an important position in the bureaucracy is made without his approval. He personally directs the work of the internal security apparatus and controls the conduct of foreign affairs, including diplomatic assignments. No promotion in the armed forces from the rank of lieutenant up can be made without his explicit approval. Economic development proposals whether to accept foreign credit or where to locate a particular factory, are referred to the Shah for his decision. He determines how the universities are administered, who is to be prosecuted for corruption, the selection of parliamentary deputies, the degree to which opposition will be permitted, and what bill will pass the parliament. End quote. The Shah believed he was ushering in a new time for Iran. His time. Iran was destined, he thought, to enter a period of prosperity, and it would be thanks to him. British and American operatives weren't so sure on this new outlook by the Shah, for they knew that taking credit for every success also means taking the blame for every failure. As the 1960s dawned, the Shah entered that decade with a new queen. Soraya, due to her infertility, had been sent packing. The new queen, Faradiba, came from a prominent pro-royal family in Iran. And as of this recording, she's still alive and well and has also written a best-selling memoir about her life as queen. In diplomatic negotiations, the Shah was growing bold. He was frustrated by the U.S. resistance to Iran building up its military. And so, to raise their ire, he extended an olive branch toward Nikita Khrushchev with an offer of a non-aggression agreement. Eisenhower was furious with the news and sent the Shah a letter that amounted to a very thinly veiled threat. Quote, I am confident that you would not knowingly take a step that would imperil your country's security and possibly weaken Iran's relations with its proven friends. End quote. 
The threat worked, and the Shah immediately backed out of the talks with the Soviets. Khrushchev, famous for his reactionary anger, pledged in response that the Soviet policy moving forward would be to overthrow the Shah. But the Shah rolled through the 60s with ever-increasing power, and he had surrounded himself with his own sycophants who only gave him good news. His latest queen had produced for him a male heir to the throne, and his close relationship with the American government added to the security of his throne. Although, he did have his detractors, increasingly from the student and teachers of Iran. In retrospect, this was indicative of radical Islamists taking over the mantle of resistance from the communists and the nationalists. The Ayatollahs in his country were growing louder, bolder, stronger, and more organized. They hated everything about the Shah. They hated his overtures to the West and his propensity for secular government and his allowance of women to hold public office and further, not requiring an Islamic litmus test for government positions. But at the top of their list was his friendly relationship with Israel. When a journalist asked him if it was true that he was selling oil to Israel, the Shah let loose a sly grin and simply said that he knew nothing about that. In this growing radical Islamic opposition, one man began to cement himself as its singular voice. This man, if you know your history, was, of course, Ayatollah Khomeini. The Ayatollah and the Shah, for a short time at least, even exchanged correspondence with each other, debating their points via the written word. Milani points out that in these letters, the Ayatollah was writing not as a cleric, but in a tone reflective of the leader of a coming revolution. The Shah, as I had mentioned, surrounded himself with sycophants. It happens to almost every authoritarian after enough time passes. Having yes-men make the daily routine of ruling easier, I suppose. But it also dangerously blinds a king to the undercurrents of opposition that may be taking hold of the land. In the case of Iran, the Shah had failed to notice the Ayatollah's infiltration of nearly every level of government, including his own secret police, Savak, and worse, his own court. Soon, citizens of Tehran simply got used to the street skirmishes between the military and Khomeini's radical coalition forces. It seems that despite the Shah's authority reaching its zenith, the less he could actually control. The British embassy reported that at this time, without the Shah's approval, quote, No public situation, civil or military, domestic or external, economic, political, or social, no senior appointment, no promotion, transfer, reward, or punishment, takes place. End quote. The CIA personally warned the Shah of a growing gap between himself and the people of Iran, that his government was losing credibility. On April 10th, 1965, one of the Shah's palace guards began firing on him with his machine gun, nearly killing him. The Shah managed to run from the soldier and barricade himself in his office before the other security guards shot the assassin dead. This incident was a massive security breach and a clear indication that radicals had deeply penetrated the military. In response to the assassination attempt, Savak began coming down harder in its arrests and its torture. Later, Savak uncovered a plot by a television crew to kidnap the queen and the crown prince. Despite these interesting times, our Shah was, it seemed, destined to preside over one of the most significant moments in the history of the Persian monarchy. It was about to celebrate its 2500th anniversary. The festivities were set to begin on October 12, 1971 at Persepolis, amid the ruins of the traditional seat of power of the ancient Achaemenid Empire. To support the world's dignitaries that would be attending, the Shah commissioned a massive tent city complete with air-conditioned apartments and banquet halls. By the Queen's order, the guests must feel like they are staying in a palace. 
The Shah gave a grandiose speech in front of the tomb of Cyrus the Great, and there he touted Iranian nationalism and history, endeavoring to instill a sense of pride into his people, while at the same time legitimizing his role as the monarch, as some sort of inheritor of this ancient power. But the Ayatollah deemed it a devil's festival and urged his followers not to attend. The British, curious what the tab for this event was, estimated that the Shah had spent upwards of $80 million once it was all said and done. In 1980, it was estimated to be the most extravagant party ever by the Guinness Book of World Records. The pseudo-Persian-Anglo nature of the festivities left a literal bad taste in the mouth of many Iranians in attendance. One diplomat asked, If we have 2,500 years of glorious civilization, why can't we have Persian food like kebab? By the end of this momentous anniversary celebration, the optics of the spectacle had wreaked havoc on the Shah among his populace. As the 70s progressed, the Shah began seeking the things that a modern power would naturally desire. Modern military equipment and nuclear power. These ambitions were on the heels of an objectively successful decade-long campaign of rebuilding Iranian prosperity. He had brought the nation's high schools from a few hundred to a few thousand. A few hundred industrial factories also rose to a few thousand. In his time, he had raised the annual economic growth of Iran from 5% to 20%. Gross national product rose from 11 to 17%. He doubled the number of employed, and women could now vote and attend school. In short, as Milani points out, he had created a thriving and educated middle class. And that middle class, it seems, was desirous of democracy. Again, though, the Shah seemed to fail to grasp this political discontent. On a spreadsheet, the middle class should be happy. But in the words of Abbas Milani, power is most insolent when it is most insular. By 1977, the Ayatollah had become such a growing and obvious subversive threat that he was exiled by the Shah. But that didn't stop him from running his resistance organization. Every day, the calls for democratization of Iran grew and grew from the public, all fueled by the Ayatollah. And it echoed movements of the past, of nationalism and of communism. But this movement had the full backing of the clergy, and seemed to be coming from the very living rooms of Iran. So palpable was the Ayatollah's power over Iran that even the Carter administration began establishing back channels with the spiritual leader, just in case. By September of 1978, the riots had become so bad that martial law was declared in Tehran, but the demonstrators refused to disperse, and the military opened fire. Reports of the unarmed dead vary from a few dozen to a few thousand. This is how revolutions start. Iranian papers then began publishing open letters by academia who laid bare charges of corruption, wild spending, and meddling in the judiciary. In response, the Shah did nothing. He didn't want to come across as a tyrant, but the less he did to silence these people, the louder their voices grew. Saddam Hussein, recent autocrat in neighboring Iraq, offered to kill the Ayatollah for the Shah, and thereby put an end to the leader of the resistance. But the Shah refused Saddam's gracious offer, fearing it would turn the Ayatollah into a martyr. The Shah looked to the powers in the West. He knew they pulled all the strings and held all the cards. In the Shah's mind, the U.S. and Britain were behind all of his troubles. And at the core of their discontent was oil. So he sent emissaries to Britain and the U.S. to try and find out what he had done to insult them, what it was that they wanted. And in response, all he received were assertions that they do not get involved in foreign affairs. Suddenly, the U.S. and Britain don't meddle outside their borders. They had, in fact, according to intelligence officials, decided that saving the Shah, as they had done in 1953, was now not in their interests. The Shah couldn't comprehend 
that his people would outright reject him without Western machinations. But like I said, this middle class wanted political freedom. Milani points out that the great irony is that for their leader, they chose a man who was most likely to take this political freedom away from them. The Ayatollah had convinced 38 million Iranians, American diplomats, the CIA, and the President of the United States that he had every intention of establishing an Islamic Republic with independence and freedom as its governing values. Even the American ambassador was entirely convinced that the Ayatollah was something of a Islamic Thomas Jefferson. Quote, The Islamic movement dominated by the Ayatollah Khomeini is far better organized and enlightened and able to resist communism than its detractors would lead us to believe, to produce something more closely approaching westernized democratic processes than might be at first apparent. End quote. Of this, Milani says that a more misguided reading of what Khomeini stood for is hard to imagine. In the middle of January 1979, Iran was in a state of suspension. Both sides were engaged in a crisis that neither had the power to end. But the Shah finally blinked and announced that he and the royal family would be leaving Iran for a vacation. In response, the Ayatollah sent the American embassy a demand, urging them to cease interfering with Iranian affairs. Many in the West, by this point, welcomed the apparent coming regime change. From Milani, quote, Iranian society and the American embassy in Iran were not alone in this dangerous game of wishful self-delusion. Prominent Western intellectuals saw Khomeini as a breath of fresh air after a century of intellectual regurgitation of the Enlightenment's sterile ideas. Not only was this an instance of remarkable arrogance in making historic judgments about a society and religion they knew virtually nothing about, it also reflected the progressive Western intellectuals' romantic weakness for any radical force that was anti-American or anti-Western. End quote. As the Shah prepared for his vacation, he let his handlers and servants know that anyone who wished to join him can come with him. But few took the opportunity. They knew it was a one-way trip. And so, nearly alone, the royal family boarded their helicopter bound for the airport. At the airport, the Shah was met with a flood of Iranian reporters. He gave a brief speech about being tired and needing some rest, and that he would return shortly once he was feeling better but the tears in his eyes gave away his inner thoughts. And suddenly, a military officer approached the Shah and fell to his feet, and he asked permission to save the Shah's throne with his own life. The Shah brought the man to his feet, allowed him to kiss his hand, and walked past him. When one of the Shah's generals, a man named Badre, asked if he had any final orders, the Shah said, quote, Do what you think is right. I have nothing to say. End quote. Finally, the last man in Iran that the Shah met was the embattled Prime Minister Bakhtiar. To him, he said, quote, I hope you will succeed. I give Iran to your care, yours, and God's. End quote. Both the general and the Prime Minister would eventually be assassinated by the Ayatollah Khomeini. And just as he did in 1953 to escape revolutionaries, the Shah piloted himself out of Iran. He immediately began having terrible trouble of finding a country that would give him asylum. He bounced around from Egypt, and then the Morocco, then to the Bahamas, and then to Mexico. Meanwhile, the Ayatollah was desperately trying to have the Shah extradited back to Iran, where the Shah knew he would be executed. The Shah most certainly expected asylum from Britain or the U.S., but neither country was all that eager. They still needed Iranian oil, and giving asylum to public enemy number one of Iran would complicate that relationship. 
it's quite a thing now in this narrative that the Ayatollah, an exiled, obscure religious cleric, now seemed to have veto power over the foreign policy of the United States of America and the British Empire. In his last days in Iran, and now in exile, the Shah had a closely guarded secret. He was dying. For years he had been battling leukemia, and though he tried to hide it, it became evident by those who simply looked on him that something was wrong and he needed medical treatment. Finally, the Carter administration on humanitarian grounds relented and allowed the Shah to seek medical treatment in New York in late 1979. This act of granting asylum all but confirmed what the Ayatollah had thought of the Shah for years. In his view, America had simply reclaimed its old puppets. And so, in response, on November 4th, 1979, at the behest of the Ayatollah, Iranian students stormed the American embassy and took the staff hostage. Most of the hostages remained in captivity for 444 days, up until the very last day of Jimmy Carter's presidency. Finally, the U.S. negotiated for the Shah to spend exile in Panama, but there were serious concerns that he would be sold out to the Ayatollah for extradition. And so Egypt extended an invitation for the Shah to live there. And in Egypt, he found his deathbed. And dying, being eaten away by his cancer, he was asked what he now thought of Iran. And he began repeating over and over again that Iran is Iran. After a few minutes, he slipped into a coma from which he would never awake. And Mohammad Reza, the last Shah of Iran, was pronounced dead on July 27, 1980, at the age of 60. About a year before the Shah died, Ayatollah Khomeini roared into power like a lion. He ordered a referendum for a new government. And on the ballot was a question. Should the monarchy be abolished in favor of an Islamic government? And allegedly, 98% voted yes. With this referendum, that borrowed time that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode had run out. When it began to run out, I can't say for sure, but perhaps it's when Iran discovered oil. The colonial powers had removed three shahs, including Reza Shah, father of the last. The last thought that if he just played the game, those same powers would protect him. He was right once, and he was wrong once. At the height of its power, the Persian Empire ruled the world, and its kings possessed countless riches. But now, by a vote, the king of Persia, the king of Iran, the great king, the king of countries, the king of provinces with many tongues, the king of this great earth far and near, the inheritor of Cyrus the Great and the Achaemenid Empire, the king of kings, a monarchy that had just recently celebrated its 2500th year in existence. Its time was up. The Shah was by no means a perfect monarch, but he was also somewhat of a reluctant monarch. Using history as a judge, it's hard to imagine that anyone would want to be a king. A reporter once asked the Shah if he ever got depressed, and he said he did, and further, that he had no real friends, that he never received any actual advice on anything. And this prompted the reporter to refer to him as a sort of Hamlet figure. Once, he told the press, quote, Let me tell you bluntly that this king business has given me nothing but headaches. Over the last 20 years, since the beginning of my rule, I have not had even one day of peace and comfort, something every human being is entitled to. End quote. 
During the Carter years, George Ball, who was one of Carter's diplomats in Iran, wrote a surprisingly honest analysis of the West's relationship with the Shah. Quote, We made the Shah what he has become. We nurtured his love for grandiose geopolitical schemes and supplied him with the hardware to indulge his fantasies. Now, his regime is coming apart under the pressure of imported modernization. How many CIA people were there on average in Iran during your, from 57 to? You mean working with us or in the country? In the country, I don't know. <laughs> no, well, that you do know about. I can't say. I knew the head of the CIA because uh, we had contacts with these people because of uh, our mutual interest in intelligence exchanges. How many people he had under him, I never asked. We were trusting them so much. What was the job of the CIA people in Iran? Well, officially it was to gather informal intelligence. Unofficially? Unofficially, God knows. You should ask them. I've just returned from Iran and an encounter with possibly the most powerful single individual in the world today. The people and their king are so close that they feel as the member of the same family. They have, I think, the respect that at least families or children used to have for their father. We won't be pushed around. We don't wish a war. But if it is imposed on us, we will not shrink. Nobody could invade us without uh, being forced to crush us, because we are not going to surrender. What excuse will you have to come to these oil-producing countries? It will be barbaric, without any precedent in the world, the worst imperialistic movement that the world had ever known. How could you do that? And why? I don't know why you think that you are superior. Do you think that we generally suffer from that, the feeling that we are? I think that you are, so far, maybe, but probably you will change. Well, it says that the Shah is an uncertain ally. His dreams of glory apparently... Oh, ah, I know. So you would like me to be your stooge? kind of partner to that exploitation when you signed the oil agreement of 1954, for instance? 
well, we had no choice. What else? We were starving, and we had to start doing something to build the country. We had no choice. Somebody said to me that if there were a referendum held tomorrow, 90% of the people would vote yes for the Shah and all his policies. Why then do you need to be so authoritarian if you have this kind of popular support and warmth towards Well, you? first of all, it's more than 90%. Secondly, what do you call authority? To enforce the law? To make uh, such fantastic, uh, drastic changes without bloodshed? If you call this authority, I don't think that my people mind that. They want it. Are you ever afraid when you make public appearances? Never. First of all, I'm not afraid of anything. Secondly, I know very well that I will be around as long as it has been written. I don't know if there's any lesson to be taken away from studying the life of the Shah. I don't really endeavor to impart any moral lessons with this show anyway. I just like to study the lives of interesting people. And the last man in a monarchy lasting 2,500 years is certainly interesting and worth understanding a little bit more about. The only thing I can say for sure that I take away every time I study a monarch is that I would never want to be a king of anything. If you enjoyed this episode and think it's worthy of at least a dollar, I would very much appreciate that dollar. I have several expenses associated with this little hobby of mine, and my patrons are the ones who keep me going. So if you could head over to patreon.com slash history, I would be forever in your debt. Another very important way you can help out this podcast is by leaving me a rating or review wherever you listen. I know many independent podcasters, and trust me when I say, we live and die by your reviews. They are always appreciated and truly put a smile on our faces. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can reach me via email at stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at sdejulius, or message me on the Written in Blood Facebook page. And so now, I hope 2021 is everything you hope it will be, and I will see you around the 15th for an almost episode. And until then, this has been Written in Blood History, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Have a happy new year, everyone. See you later. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.